This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Romans 3 explains exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did to secure our salvation. And I'm going to read from the King James. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, there is a key word. It's a word that appears over and over again in the Old Testament, and the Bible explains it as penal substitution. That is, that on the cross, Jesus Christ took our place as our sacrificial lamb of God, and his blood was shed to take the punishment we deserved for our sins. Now, over the years, a number of theologians have diverged from this view of the penal substitutionary atonement and have come up with alternative theories to explain the effects of Christ's death on the cross. But this biblical idea also has come under philosophical attack. So how is it that Christ's death does atone for our sins? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. William Lane Craig, professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and at Houston Baptist University. His latest book is Atonement and the Death of Christ, an Exegetical, Historical and Philosophical Exploration. Dr. Craig, it's so good to talk to you again. How are you today? Well, thank you, Janet. I'm doing just super, and it is great to be on your program again. Well, thank you so much. So when we're talking about the word atonement, I think it's interesting because, as I understand it, the King James is the only version of Romans 5.11, or at least over and against the modern versions that you would usually use, to use that word atonement. Uh, What do you make of that, that atonement is not so prolific a word in the New Testament? Well, I thought that was a striking translation, The difficulty is that the word atonement in English has two very different meanings. One is the meaning that it has etymologically, that is to say, from its word origin. It comes from a Middle English expression meaning at-one-ment, which is a state of unity or a state of harmony. You are at-one with God. And the closest New Testament word for that is catalage, which is usually translated as reconciliation. (laughs) Uh, And that word is frequently used in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says God has given us a ministry of reconciliation, and we implore you, be reconciled to God. That's one sense of the word atonement. But, and this is what's so interesting, that is not the meaning of the Hebrew and Greek words that are typically translated atonement or to atone. The word in Hebrew is kipper, and most of us have heard of this in connection with the Jewish festival Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And kipper means to cleanse, Hmm. 
to purify. Uh, and this is really the biblical meaning of the word atonement. It is the cleansing or purification of sin, whereby we then have reconciliation with God. And the reason this is so important, Janet, is that most contemporary theories of the atonement focus upon atonement in the sense of reconciliation, Hmm. but they completely ignore the biblical sense of the word atonement in terms of the cleansing or purification of sin that, as you said, takes place through sacrifice. Well, right. This is fascinating, and I would imagine there are a lot of people who don't know about this. So when you're talking about Hebrews and its references in Hebrews chapter 9, for example, to Christ and what his blood did, cleansing us from sin and so forth, there are a number of references like that. That's what yes. it really that is the heart of what Christ did on the cross. And yet reconciliation, like you said, with some of these other theories about the atonement, you can go in very much different directions if you're just going with the word reconciliation than the word exactly. that you're talking about. Uh, the, right. Uh, yeah. The author of the book of Hebrews is uh, piggybacking on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement and this blood sacrifice uh, that was offered uh, then. But. Too many contemporary theologians thinking of atonement in terms of just reconciliation use the way in which we reconcile with each other in human relationships as their model. When we have a falling out with a friend, how do we reconcile and forgive and overcome bitterness and so forth? And so they build this whole theory of atonement on this human model of reconciliation, which has no connection with the biblical sense of atonement. Right. Right. So of those theories that are out there, you think of like the Christus Victor and the moral influence theory, the ransom mm-hmm. theory, and some of those others. Which of those alternative yes. theories would tend to get this the most wrong in using that reconciliation translation wow. rather than atonement? Well, it, I, I think that all of these theories have insights which are part of a multifaceted theory of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement has been aptly compared to a multifaceted jewel, uh, and they all play a role. But in a well-cut gem, there will be a central facet, which gemologists call the table of the gem, and it anchors all the other facets and is refracted in them. And I think that penal substitution is the table of the gem that is the doctrine of the atonement. Um, And other motifs like moral influence, ransom, Christus Victor, are minor facets uh, of this jewel. That's an important point. So when we are talking about the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, what would you say are the key elements of that substitution in securing our salvation? What would you put into that category? I think that the central thesis is that on the cross, Jesus bore the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins. And by doing that, he freed us from liability to punishment so that we could receive a divine pardon and be redeemed. 
That's great. So now when we think of other words that we use pertaining to our salvation, like redemption and things like that, I think, for example, Mm. about when you look at Romans 4, for example, there's the reference that Jesus was raised for our justification. So when we say that justification was accomplished through Jesus' resurrection, what elements of salvation would that leave in the category of Jesus' death merely? Well, I have a really interesting take on that. That verse says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, the Greek word for the preposition for is dia, and it takes the accusative case, dia plus the accusative. And that in Greek means on account of. So what the verse would say literally is Jesus was delivered up on account of our trespasses, that makes sense, and then raised on account of our justification, which doesn't seem to make sense. And so people have translated that in such a way that he was put to death for our trespasses, but raised with a view toward our justification, which is not really what the passage says. I think, rather, we can interpret this to mean that when Jesus completely satisfied divine justice, when the demands of divine justice were met on our behalf, then Christ had to be set free, because punishment cannot justly continue once justice has been satisfied. And so Christ, having died to satisfy the demands of divine justice, he had to be raised from death. He could not stay dead uh, and, and let that punishment justly continue. So he was actually raised on account of our justification. Wow. Well, that there's a lot more there. We're going to pause for a break. Dr. William Lane Craig is with us discussing his book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today after this. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. 
I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw out my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I love this subject of the atonement. I never get tired of hearing how Jesus laid down his life and took my punishment as a sinner so I could be saved and reconciled to a holy God. I know you don't get tired of it either. And we are talking with Dr. William Lane Craig, professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and at Houston Baptist University. He's out with a great book on this, Atonement and the Death of Christ. And you were saying before we went to the break, Dr. Craig, this was fascinating, really, this passage in Romans 4 that talks about Abraham's faith being counted to him as righteousness goes on to describe that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And you were explaining that really the way you're you know, looking at that is that based on the translation, when Jesus satisfied divine justice, then he had to be set free. So would that then yeah. mean that everything that was accomplished for our salvation would be part and parcel of the atonement before the resurrection, even with was discussed? Yes, I think that the demands of divine justice were fully satisfied by Christ's death and being forsaken by God the Father on the, uh, on the cross and in his death. Um, that is the penalty for sin in the Bible. Death is the penalty, the just desert for our sins, and Jesus bore that death that we deserved. And having satisfied divine justice fully, he could not continue in a state of punishment. That would be like leaving a, someone in jail after he's fully served his sentence. It would be unjust. Right. And then when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, there's the discussion of the essential nature of the resurrection, that in fact, if the resurrection had not taken place, then we would still be dead in our sins. Yeah, the idea there, I think, is that Christ would not really be the divine Son of God who paid the penalty for our sins. The resurrection is, I think, a necessary consequence of the satisfaction of divine justice, but it is also a dramatic, public, historical vindication of the efficacy of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. It is It is proof that divine justice has been met and that, therefore, we can go free. So it it is both—it has a role both evidentially to us, but also it it, uh, is a requirement, I think, of the satisfaction of divine justice. Yeah. Now, now, when you go back to the Old Testament, obviously there's a lot of discussion mm-hmm. about atonement, the Day of Atonement, as you mentioned before, Yom Kippur. Um, yes. What can we learn about Christ's atonement in the New Testament by going back to some of those key passages about it in Exodus and Leviticus? In other words, looking at the biblical data, yes. especially from the Old Testament. You know, I used to think Leviticus was one of the most boring books in the Bible, just all about blood and guts and butchering these animals and what you do with their parts. And I'll tell you, as a result of this study, 
the book of Leviticus had just come alive for me because you see in these animal sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle and then in the temple a foreshadowing and a picture of Jesus' self-sacrificial death on the cross, whereby he achieved our atonement. The purposes of these animal sacrifices were was twofold. They served, first of all, to cleanse the worshipers from sin. That is called expiation. And then they served to satisfy divine justice, uh, and that's called propitiation. It turns away God's wrath so that a holy and just God could live in proximity with a sinful and impure people. And the sacrifice of Christ does exactly the same two things. It expiates or cleanses of sin, and it propitiates God, that is, it satisfies God's justice and turns away wrath. Yeah, that's right. So you think of 1 Peter 3.18 that talks about Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And you point out that the imputation is also part and parcel of the atonement. And you touched on it right there that he takes our sin, but he imputes to us his righteousness by faith. Yes, this is very controversial. This whole thing is controversial among theologians, even good biblical evangelical theologians who accept substitutionary atonement will often deny that our sins were imputed to Christ. They they, they will say that's impossible that he could be held guilty for something that we did. And so they deny that our sins are imputed to Jesus, and they deny that his righteousness is imputed to us in turn. And in the book, I defend both of those notions. I think that both of them are biblical and to be found in Paul, um, that on the cross, Christ became sin for us. Our sins were legally imputed to him, and that in turn, his righteousness is reckoned to us through our faith in him. Right. That's interesting, though. If you say there are actually people within evangelical circles denying the imputation, they're denying the gospel. I mean, what do they believe if they're denying that? Well, no, I wouldn't be that harsh, Janet, because they could affirm penal substitution. They could say, yes, Christ bore the suffering for sin that we deserved, and thereby our sins are forgiven. And so they they would see it as substitutionary atonement. But you see, it makes it more difficult for them to explain how God could punish Christ justly for our sin if he was not imputed our sin, Hmm. if he was just an innocent third party that God took and brutally killed for our sins. Um, I think that the imputation of sin is what makes it just and possible for God to punish Christ in our place. That's interesting. So then they would use the same language, but they would have a difficult time seeing that someone who was righteous as Jesus was could take the punishment for sinners. So this is a philoso- this is where you get into the philosophical yeah. problems, right? The challenges that are out there. Yes. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. There's a biblical issue here. First, does the Bible teach imputation? And I argue it does. And then secondly, is imputation philosophically coherent? Is it even possible? And it's very commonly said 
that this is not a possibility. And what I do in the book, Janet, is examine in detail examples of the imputation of wrongdoing in our criminal justice system. And most people do not realize that the imputation of guilt and punishment of a blameless third party for the wrongs or the crimes of others is a widely practiced and commonly accepted feature of our Anglo-American justice system. That's a, what would be a good example of that? A good example would be the um, case of um, Allen versus Whitehead, where a an employer, or rather, uh, an owner of a cafe, had delegated the management of the cafe to another man. And this manager allowed prostitutes to congregate in the cafe in violation of the law. Well, it wasn't just the manager that was held liable for this wrongdoing. The, the manager's crime was imputed to the owner of the cafe because he was the one who had delegated the manager to run the cafe. And so even though the manager, I mean, the owner knew nothing about what the manager was doing, he was held criminally liable. <laughs> That's just one example of this. It's, it's called vicarious liability. Very common in the law. And I think that we can similarly say that God held Jesus vicariously liable for our sins. That's good. Does that make much headway when you bring this to the attention of the people who are having these philosophical challenges to the imputation that the Bible talks about? Does that sway them at all when you bring up these sorts of examples? Well, I, I think it does. I, I spoke last year at a Christian university, and there was a female theologian in the audience who, after my first talk, just pounded me with questions. She was very aggressive and I think quite hostile to this idea of penal substitution. But then after I spoke again the second time and went out to dinner with the faculty, the theology faculty, she sat across the table from me and she, she looked at me and she said, well, she said, I've got to say no one has ever made the doctrine of penal substitution appear as attractive as you have. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I took that as a tremendous, uh, compliment and victory. Yeah. Well, I mean, couldn't we also say, though, Dr. Craig, that the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament also were unjustly killed? Well, except I don't think you have moral duties toward animals in that way. True. I mean, it wasn't like animal cruelty. They were serving a sacrificial purpose, and they were butchered and eaten by the priests and the people, um, so I, I don't think that this is an example of unjust behavior. Yeah. We should not think that these animals were punished for the people's sins. They died in the place of the person as a very graphic way of portraying the person's guilt before God and the consequences of that guilt, that they were due the death penalty that the animal suffered instead of them. But we shouldn't think 
that the animal was being punished for the sins of the people. Yeah, that's true. I, I Absolutely. And I was just thinking of it in the sense of uh, the lamb is the substitute. But I, I totally understand what you're saying as well. But I mean, this, this just points out, Dr. Craig, how important it is for Christians to consider the doctrine of the atonement and to really understand it and wrestle with some of the arguments that are out there, not just the theological arguments that are out there, but also some of the philosophical challenges which you outline in your book. The name of the book is Atonement and the Death of Christ by Dr. William Lane Craig. Thank you so much, Dr. Craig, for being with us again. Thank you, Janet. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. God bless you. And we'll be back right after. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. A few months ago, I had interviewed the famous Soviet dissident Vladimir Bukovsky. And as it turned out, I found this out accidentally because somebody told me about this or it was written about that, you know, it was written about on the Internet that I was actually the last person to interview him. Now, that doesn't matter one way or another, but it just is meaningful to me because he was such an important person to get to talk to. He has an incredible life story, and he wrote a memoir in the late 70s called To Build a Castle. I cannot tell you what a great book that is. You must get a copy of that on Kindle or a physical copy. I think they're a little bit more expensive, pretty expensive, a physical copy. I'm reading it on Kindle, but it is unbelievable, and it is so important at this particular moment in American history, I think, for every American to read that book. The reason I say that is because this was a man who was willing to go into the Soviet prison system for years because he would not go along with the Soviet ideology. And of course, there were many other people who were in the same boat, not as many as there should have been, but he was an absolute hero. And then, you know, there's lots to say about him. But I came across several sections as I've been reading the book that I thought would be worth sharing with you, because I think that it is instructive for us as Americans to hear it. When he was talking about this idea of standing up against the Soviet system, he used as an example the one guy, the working man who all of a sudden looks around and says, you know, life here is pretty rotten. They talk about the glorious revolution, but really what we're doing is we're standing in mile-long lines to get flour. We have leaky roofs that'll never be repaired. We're shoved into these communal apartments with multiple other families. Nothing works. Day after day, it's the same. We're poor. We have no power. We can't leave. This is not a glorious revolution. This is horrible. And so he begins to write letters to the editor or he files a complaint with the Soviet system in some way, shape or form, some Soviet politician. All of a sudden he's pulled into a shabby office and they say, hey, we saw your letter to the editor. Hey, we saw this complaint that you filed to this office or that office or the other office. Hey, we just wanted you to know that we have been looking at you. And all of a sudden he leaves and he feels very intimidated and he's very scared because he has a wife at home and he has kids at home and he has parents at home. And 
and he doesn't know what will happen to him if he goes any further with his protestations. And as he's walking through the streets, he's looking at everybody else around him and he's thinking, if I just had some company, if I just had some people who would stand up with me, maybe we could make a difference. Now, this is what Bukowski had to say, and I'm reading a couple of different excerpts out of sequence. It's in sequence, but I'm skipping over certain parts because I wanted to get to the heart of it. Here's what he says. When he comes to this idea of why the Soviet people living this nightmare of a life under communism didn't stand up to it in mass, this is what he says. They keep quiet because they know, not because they don't know. Look at them, those Soviet people, streaming silently down the underground passages of the metro or along the main streets, past the newspaper stands where they just pick out the headlines and gnash their teeth. Everyone is silent, each conducting his inner dialogue. And in the course of a lifetime, he builds up such a store of rage that the whole world turns black for him. One way or another, everyone is implicated in the crimes of the regime. Everyone works for government enterprises, reinforcing the system and creating its wealth. Everyone raises his hand at meetings, votes at elections, and most important of all, does not protest. Because no man can flay a stone. What can I do alone? If everyone acted, so would I. If I didn't, someone else would. You must make compromises, concessions, and sacrifices for the sake of the main cause. Never, ever protest openly. That is a provocation which merely enrages the authorities and brings suffering on the innocent. Open protests play into the hands of the hardliners in the Politburo and prevent the doves from carrying out a liberalization. Open protests hinder liberalization, which can only succeed by means of power politics and secret diplomacy. To protest about details is merely to expose oneself. The thing to do is to lie low. Then when the decisive moment comes, okay. But in the meantime, we'll disguise ourselves. Yes, but not now. This is the worst possible time. My wife's pregnant. My children are ill. I have to defend my thesis first. My son's about to go to the university and so on till the end of a lifetime. Russia is a land of slaves. The Russians have never had democracy and never will. They don't have the aptitude for it. It's not use trying. There's not any other way for our people. The people are silent. You protest. I'll stay out of it. And so everyone from members of the Politburo, academicians and writers down to collective farm laborers and factory workers managed to find a justification. Moreover, most people sincerely believe that these are their true feelings. Very few realize that they are pretexts and excuses. And hardly anybody will admit openly and honestly that he is simply afraid of reprisals. Only the so-called true Orthodox believers, the sect that has cut itself off from the Russian church and does not recognize the Soviet state, considering it the work of the devil, are not supporting this tyrannical system. But there are very few of them. And they are all in jail because they refuse to work for the state. All the rest, whether they wish it or not, are building communism. The state doesn't care what theories they use to justify their participation or what they think or feel, so long as they don't resist, protest, or publicly disagree. They suit the Soviet state. Now, this had a big impact on me when I was reading through this, because as I've mentioned on the show before, I've been to the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union, so I know something of the life that was lived over there, and the life that is over there now under Putin, they're still under a strong man. They really don't know how to live with freedom over in the former Soviet Union. But there's a bigger lesson here for us. We live in the United States of America, and we have been blessed more than any people on earth by being able to be Americans, free American citizens with freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And we are watching it 
before our eyes under tremendous assault. It is no matter, it is no longer just one college campus that is suppressing somebody's free speech. And then there's a little lawsuit and everything is rectified. It's not that anymore. We have these people on the streets of our cities that are causing mayhem and attacking people now and being violent and looting and robbing and intimidating. You see what happened over the weekend, for example, Michelle Malkin and some others were trying to conduct this law enforcement support rally, and they were attacked by Black Lives Matter and Antifa. People were assaulted, and the police did nothing because apparently they were told to stand down. This is America? And she was saying, and some others were saying, why in the world aren't more people standing up against this? And I'm thinking to myself, we're in a different position than the Soviet citizens because we're not under a communist government. We're not under a communist regime. We still are free people on paper, but we are useless if we allow this stuff to go on in our country and we don't stand up against it. Which brings me to one of my new heroes. (laughs) One of my new heroes. You may have seen her actions over the weekend. Her name is Bevelyn Beatty. And she is a black Christian woman. She is unbelievable. The first time I saw what she was doing was what she did over the weekend, which was she took black paint and she went to the Black Lives Matter mural on the streets of New York and painted over it. She painted over it and she did it several times, too. She didn't just do it in New York City. She did it in Brooklyn and she did it elsewhere. And she is on fire. And she had some really interesting things to say about this. After she was arrested by the police, she and another friend in her ministry were arrested by police. Listen to this. This is cut one. Two more people came in yes. after us yes. for throwing paint on that mural. Yes. They treated them good, too. Yes, they did. They, they did. didn't. They didn't beat them up, or, and they were in and out. They got. They they they, they got their, their charge. They were in and out. When I say these police officers are loving, and kind, yes. and everything that they say police officers aren't, they are. Yes. Um, and I'm telling you right now, if it, if it's if ever there's a time to rise up and take it's back now. your country, it's now. It's now. A lot of people. Um, uh, thought I was being a hero by doing what I did, but I wasn't being a hero. I was being an American. I was being an American. But more than that, I was being a Christian. A Christian. This is what Christians do. We turn tables. We destroy the works of the devil. This is what Christians are called to do. And that's what God allowed us to do. And he gave us favor. And I can't give y'all too much detail because I don't want the people working at the police department to get into anything but at the end of the day when i tell you these people showed us so much love and favor it was crazy when i say cray cray i mean cray cray unbelievable okay well we're gonna come back i've got more to say about bevel and Beatty, and you're good to we'll get to hear more of what she had to say as well stay with us you're listening to janet meffer today This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places 
places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I am so encouraged to see Bevelyn Beatty out there. Boy, she's unbelievable. She actually appeared in the Chop Zone in Seattle not too long ago. I think we played some audio from that back when that happened because she was out there sharing the gospel. And she was talking about how bad Black Lives Matter and the Democrat Party were. In fact, I think we've got that clip. Listen to this. This is clip five. I know people don't like Trump. I understand that. But let me tell you something. If I had to pick between him and Joe Biden, I'm not voting in Joe Biden. You want to see you want to see a bunch of black people go to jail by the next four years? Put Joe Biden in. Watch what happens. You want to see black men get killed substantially? Like, they, like you've never seen before? Put Joe Biden in and watch what happens. These Democrats, and I'm sorry to say this, I'm not trying to be racist, but they hate black people. These are the same people who have fought to keep slavery in. These are the same people who built the KKK. These are the same people who hated us from the beginning. The Republican Party is the party of the blacks. Blacks free, the Republican Party is the only party that the black people actually assisted in finding. How about that? So that was Bevelyn Beatty a few weeks ago, but now she's been out opposing the Black Lives Matter movement. She was arrested over the weekend for dumping paint on the Black Lives Matter mural, the street mural outside Trump Tower. She live streamed herself doing it again at other murals in Harlem and Brooklyn later on. She's just unbelievable. And she's got a ministry called At The Well Ministries. And I guess she goes around city to city with her friend, her friend who is named Edme Shavanis, and they go around to different cities and I guess share the gospel and help the poor and do all kinds of things, kind of a street ministry type of thing. This woman is on fire. I was listening to what she was saying in the news clips. I was watching her, some of her videos that she's put out on the internet. And I thought she reminds me of the brave German woman. Do you remember the brave German woman? I'm taking myself back years. I think this was about 2014, but Heidi Munt was her name, and she was the woman who stood up in the Church of the Reformation in Germany when they were having an interfaith event, and they had a a Muslim imam get up and begin to start the prayer. And she stood up and she said, Jesus Christ alone is Lord of Germany. And she started denouncing it. And I thought, where are the men? 
Where are the Christian men? I mean, praise God for these women. They're standing up. They're taking a stand. They're getting out into the streets. They're getting out into the churches. They're taking a stand for the Lord Jesus because they love him and they worship him and they want to see him glorified in all the earth. And I'm so grateful for them. But I just come back and I'm like, where are the guys? At any rate, I want to play a little bit more of this video that Bevelin and Edme put together over the weekend. They talked about what happened when they went to the police station. They were arrested for putting the black paint on the Black Lives Matter mural. And they talked a little bit about what happened when they learned what was going on with the New York cops. Listen to cut two. This is what's going on. Police are leaving. 35 police officers a day right now are retiring. A day. But because of the defundment of police, guess what? No police are being hired. So police are leaving New York City by the droves right now. They're leaving, leaving. This is the information I found out. They're leaving. And that mayor has 28 police officers around the clock at that mural in Fifth Avenue. Okay, while people are dying in the hood, he's making sure that that mural is guarded because it's a political statement. And one of the black police officers told me that he said, Mayor de Blasio, he is using us as a political statement. He could care less about us. Let me tell you something. There is more diversity in the police force than there is in the Black Lives Matter people. Majority of the people pushing Black Lives Matter are white liberals. And then you got some uneducated other races and then you got your token blacks. But the majority of them are white liberals. You have more diversity with the police than you do with Black Lives Matter. But guess what? Black Lives Matter does not speak about the black cop that dies. Black Lives Matter doesn't speak about the black man that dies due to black on black crime. Black Lives Matter does not address the black baby in the womb that's murdered and the fact that that's the the number one killer of black Americans right now. Black Lives Matter is for all of that. And another thing, Black Lives Matter is against the black man. Black Lives Matter does not support the nuclear family. Black Lives Matter hates the black man because the man itself stands for authority. The man in itself stands for pillar. I mean, I could listen to her for hours. She's I just love it. Amen. Amen. Amen to everything that you're saying. And she went on to make the point about the LGBT movement. And she said, when you break up the nuclear family, I mean, why wouldn't you stand up for homosexuality and some of the sexual immorality that is destroying the family? You destroy the family, you take the man out of the home, you don't have the authority, you don't have the pillar that they have a problem with. She's right. And this is true not only in black families, this is true in every family. When you break families up, then you're less strong as the bedrock of the community and the bedrock of the culture. Then she goes on stressing the importance of this fight for the United States. This is cut three. Pay attention. We have to fight for our police. We have to fight for our constitution. We have to fight for our country. And listen, they want us to fight for them. So you take that how you want to take that. Last night, we went to Harlem and we poured paint all over that Black Lives Matter mural, which mind you, you think Mayor de Blasio gonna pay for the ones in the hood? He put one right in front of Trump Towers and then he put the rest of them in the hood. Every other place he put a Black Lives Matter mural is in the hood, okay? They are not guarded by police. Only the one in front of the Trump Towers is. He knows what he's doing. You think he's going to pay to cover it? No, 
He's not. That's not going to come out of city's payment. They're not. They don't care. He he's focused on keeping it covered, keeping it there, right in front of the Trump Towers, right. because it's that's a political it's statement. It has nothing to do with the black people. So for all the black people who are upset that I covered it, you're going to be even more madder because guess what? We're not going to stop. We are <laughs> never going to support Black Lives Matter. We are never going to stand for an organization that is called to terrorize and destroy our country. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to get lit from here. Mm-hmm. I'm challenging everybody to go out and deface the devil. <laughs> I mean, she makes some good points, does she not? The police wanted them out there fighting for them. They wanted them out there. You can imagine how much the police appreciate the presence of somebody who says, refund the police, which is one of her battle cries. Refund the police. We need the police in the black community. We need the police to help us fight crime. We need the police to defend us. What are you guys, crazy? Jesus matters. She's out there shouting it loud and proud and praise God for her because those kinds of voices are desperately needed right now. There is this malaise across America among so many of us that says it's over. What can we do? The progressives won. I mean, I'll vote, but, you know, back to Netflix. We cannot have that attitude. She's like a shot of adrenaline to me to listen to her and to listen to her encouragement. Listen up. Pay attention. You have a country to save. And then her friend Edmi says two men joined them after they were out there painting the mural. There were two men who joined them after they started. And they say that's the key to saving America. This is cut for. I'm telling you, folks, it's a trickling effect that if we allow ourselves to first of all be consumed with the spirit of the living God, mm-hmm. be consumed with his presence and his counsel and his kingdom. I'm telling you people by morning, so many of the issues that we're dealing with would be solved. Oh, we're waiting on you to stand up, waiting on you to stand up, waiting on you to get up, rise up, fight back, take your country back. Look what they're doing to our country. Aww. Look at our Lincoln Memorial, Aww. bro. Look at our country. There is no excuse not to get up and stand and be willing to go to jail for your country. This is what this is what Trump wants. This man can't stand alone. He need the American people to be behind him. Y'all got to stop playing games and just thinking, oh, if I sit at home and just take a vote, it's going to work out. It don't work like that. You got to stand, you guys. You got to rise up. You got to rise up while you got the chance, while you still have mm-hmm. your freedoms, mm-hmm. while you still have them. Mm-hmm. You have to rise up. Well said, while you still have your freedoms. And that's why I was reading that excerpt earlier from Vladimir Bukowski's memoir, To Build a Castle, a must read. We have to learn the lessons of the past, folks. I'm listening to some people within the evangelical circles talk about, well, you know, freedom is in Christ, you know, and we romanticize America and we worship America too much and we need to go back to the word of God as if the freedoms that we have enjoyed as Christians in this land of the free and the home of the brave have been at odds with the Bible. No way am I going to go along with that lie. That is a lie from the pit. It's to discourage the church from standing up. And just like Bukowski said, during the time of the Soviet state at its heyday, the people who were standing against it in the main were the Christians. We will not bow to your idol. We will not submit to your Soviet state. We will not go along with this lie. And you know something, American Christians? We need to learn those same lessons and we need to fight, just as Bevelin said, for our freedoms while there is still time. Pray for this country. 
This Hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us to send 1,200 Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. It only costs $5 to send one Bible. Call now 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you so much.